Hello, and welcome to AJC Passport, brought to you by AJC, the diplomatic arm of the Jewish community. Each week, we'll chat with experts from around the world to help you better understand the week's headlines and what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. Hi, AJC Passport listeners. Last week, I was at AJC Atlanta's Legacy Dinner, celebrating 75 years since the creation of that AJC office. At the dinner, I spoke with Ambassador Hannah Rosenthal, a former State Department Special Envoy to monitor and combat anti-Semitism. She told me all about her time in the administration, traveling the world, working to fight hatred of the Jewish people. Now, here's that conversation. For three years, Hannah Rosenthal helped lead the fight against international anti-Semitism as the U.S. State Department's special envoy to monitor and combat anti-Semitism. Her career has taken her through two different presidential administrations and several important Jewish communal posts, most recently as the CEO of the Milwaukee Jewish Federation, a position she retired from last year to spend more time with her grandchildren. Good decision? Very good decision. Good decision. Good. Hannah, thank you so much for joining us. Let's hear it for Hannah, please. My pleasure. Okay, so by way of helping us understand the role of the special envoy, can you tell us about one or two accomplishments that you're particularly proud of from your time in the role? Well, to be a diplomat, and those who knew me before I left to be a diplomat thought that somebody was crazy to appoint me. There are many things you do as diplomats. Sometimes you go and you have a specific message you want to bring to, Consul General will recognize this, Um, it could be the Prime Minister, the President, or whoever is the appropriate person. There were terrible things happening in Malmo, Sweden. Half of the Jewish population in Malmo, which is the third largest city in Sweden, were moving out some to Stockholm, but a lot to other places in Europe, and a few to Israel. It was very hostile. The rabbi who would walk with his children um, to shul every day had things thrown at him. It was dangerous. It was awful. And I was there to try and confront that and make it better. Little old me. (laughs) So the first thing I did was meet with the mayor of Malmo. And as we're sitting down, the first thing he says to me, and there are many diplomats in the room, many. I had an entourage, he had an entourage, and then our embassy was there. First thing he said is, why do you people pick on me? And we all know what you people means. Mm. Mm. And I questioned him about it. His English was impeccable. And he said, I'm sorry, you Jews. Like that was an improvement. And I explained to him why we're not picking. We are merely pointing out things he said. The meeting went nowhere. So the next thing. That's a shock. Yeah, right, (laughs) shocking. The next thing that happened, he was very, he wanted everything to be about Israel and Palestinians. And I was talking about anti-Semitism, which, if we get to it, can be very different things. And... It was clear I was not going to get to him, and I was not going to make a change unless I talked over his head to the public. So I hastily called a press conference, 
He insisted on being there with me, and I said, you can, but I'm not going to let the mic be open for you. I have something to say. And I shamed him. This is not the preferred method of dipl <laughs> diplomacy, but it's definitely not in Sweden. And what happened was I talked to the public, and many of the elected officials heard it. And the next thing I knew when I went back to the United States was he was no longer mayor of Malmo. Wow. And so it can work if you use all the diplomatic tools at your disposal, some of which is talking face to face, and some of which is talking past them to the public that elects them. Wow. That's a... That is a unique diplomatic story. I just want to call out another one of your accomplishments, which we don't have to go into, but it was just an interesting connection for me. Um, two weeks ago, I spoke with a fellow on the podcast, Imam uh, Mohammed Majid, wow. who you actually, uh, if I'm not mistaken, brought to Auschwitz with a delegation of eight or so eight uh, American imams. Uh, imams. Mohammed Majid is a founding member of AJC's Muslim Jewish Advisory Council, and he is perhaps one of the most, if not the most, prominent imams here in America. Um, that is true. He was the head of the Islamic Society of North America. So just another example, perhaps a slightly more traditionally diplomatic example of how someone might reach across borders and boundaries and the reason that I brought eight imams to Auschwitz was that I had identified Holocaust denial as a major issue. And it was going up as our direct witnesses, survivors, liberators were going down. Mm -hmm. And my goal was to get them all to sign a statement condemning Holocaust denial. Two of the imams were deniers. Wow which made the trip very controversial. How many of you have, oh, I'm sorry, I'm talking to an audience that's audio. Um, <laughs> if any of you have been to Auschwitz, you know that people who walk into Auschwitz are very different when they walk out. And I trusted that these imams would have the same experience. What was fascinating is what was it there that turned them. Yeah. Um, and it could be from the children's display in Auschwitz I to picking up bone fragments that are still there so many years later. But they all did sign the statement and condemned all forms of anti-Semitism. It wasn't easy. It was a long discussion. But I was asked to leave the room, and my people were asked to leave the room. And they came up with a statement that then had congressional hearings on. And so sometimes reaching across is the best way, not shaming, <laughs> but, Amazing. but opening eyes. Let's talk about anti-Semitism. Um, here at AJC, we talk a lot about the three-headed monster of anti-Semitism, right? You can't only tackle far-right anti-Semitism or far-left anti-Semitism, no matter how much focusing on one to the exclusion of the other might be politically convenient. And you also can't ignore the anti-Semitism that comes from certain radical corners of the Muslim community. Is that how you see anti-Semitism, too? I see anti-Semitism. Unfortunately, I'm going to ruin everybody's sleep tonight. I see it all of the above and more. 
Um, when you said there were three kinds, where I thought you were going to go was religious anti-Semitism, racial anti-Semitism, and political anti-Semitism. Mm. And the religious anti-Semitism is still there. I was in Krakow once, um, where, of course, one of the popes was from. He had been bishop there, uh, cardinal there. And as I'm leaving Auschwitz in a, you know, a caravan of people, the interpreter says, I have some bad news for you, and shows me her phone. And the bishop of Krakow had just said, the Holocaust is an invention of the Jews to garner support for Israel. This is in Krakow, wow. outside of Auschwitz. And so I really couldn't go back with the rest. I was there on a presidential um, delegation. I had to go and confront this. And again, it did not appear to be successful in my dialogue. However, when I went back with Imam Majid to Krakow, the different bishop, invited us all for snacks, and he pulled me aside and said, Ambassador Rosenthal, can I talk to you? And I said, sure. And he said, I think you'd like to know that Bishop Peronek is no longer hmm. here. So it happens. It happens, but it sometimes doesn't happen before your eyes and you leave and you're very disappointed. But it happens in their timing, not yours. I think that often when we talk about anti-Semitism, we can get caught in these debates. I'm going to stick with my paradigm of anti-Semitism, if that's okay. okay. You're the expert. Fine. That's fine. <laughs> um, we get caught in these debates, right? What's worse? The New York Times cartoon, the Pittsburgh shooter, or Hamas, right? Like, wh like which is the most anti-Semitic? That's not a very helpful debate to have, right? No, it isn't. I mean, can you say more about why we fight over these things rather than fighting the hatred? I'm going to say something that um, I may have um, a protest. I think what's really dangerous is owning victimhood. Mm. And I don't think we should be debating who's the biggest victim. And I don't just mean that among Jews. Um, and so what Hamas does with rockets into Israel from Gaza is horrible and needs to be condemned. And what happens when, uh, what were your other examples? Uh, the New York Times cartoon and the Pittsburgh shooting. The cartoons, you know, it's a form of expression and we in America, you know, revere the First Amendment, and I do, but that needs to be fought with good cartoons and good statements rather than calling for it to be obliterated. And as for the shooting, shootings, um, that we are watching our people experience here in the United States, um, there is nothing worse on the oppression scale uh, than killing people. And we have to call that what it is. And it is frightening and it is scary, and the story that you told about being afraid to leave the synagogue on that Saturday of Tree of Life shooting, it, it haunts us all, all Jewish institutions. It's like, what next? Um, and we need to be educating the community at large to how profound that is to our being, how profound it is to everything we stand for. 
It is also profound when rockets and missiles are going into Israel. But thankfully, we have a strong um, U.S. anti-missile system, and Israel has a strong military to fight it. And we have to deal with the fact that do we talk to Hamas or do we not? And of course, we should. Because by not talking, where are we getting? And if the two-state solution is going to happen, we got to keep that window open because it's closing rapidly. Now, Hannah, I want to I want to zoom in on Europe um, as we talk more about anti-Semitism, which in many ways is, is the epicenter. Certainly, historically, has been an epicenter of, of anti-Semitism. You and I spoke about two weeks ago. It's not quite one of those green room conversations just before we came out on stage, but we spoke about two weeks ago to get coordinated. And I mentioned that one thing I might want to bring up would be the anti-Semitism of Jeremy Corbyn and his Labour Party in the UK. And you immediately came back at me and you raised the resurgent neo-Nazi anti-Semitism in Germany. So why did one make you think of the other? Well, I think that what makes me think of Germany is that Germany does everything we want them to do. They have a chancellor that every time she speaks, she would condemn her own country. They pay reparations. They demand Holocaust education, quality Holocaust education in their schools. Every German child visits a camp, a death camp. Um, there are monuments. There are museums. If you had a checklist of what you wanted a country to do, Germany does it. And still, we see this resurgence. That's why I went to Germany, mm. because they're the only country in Europe that owns their role in the annihilation of our people. And they don't shy away from it. And even with that, we find this resurgence. You would see it in graffiti. You'd see it with um, tattoos on the heads. Um, there's only one thing a, a swastika means. And when you see it on garbage cans and on walls and on posters, and all of a sudden, everywhere you're looking, there is this graffiti, it's very unnerving. And then when you see that nationalists are being elected there, you know, of all places, Germany, that's why I went there. That isn't to say what's happening in Britain isn't horrendous. They've got to figure out what they are right now as a country. You know, are they in? Are they out? Is it Brexit? Is it not? What does that mean? And so with all this chaos, the anti-Semitism, it hasn't disappeared, and it hasn't disappeared from people who are concerned about it. It's still constantly being pointed out, but we should find no solace in that. I, I guess there's an interesting, even though what we're seeing in the UK and in Germany are happening from opposite sides of the political spectrum, right? Anti-Semitism is creeping into the mainstream in the UK from the far left whereas in Germany it's creeping into the mainstream from the far right, what unites the two in a certain sense is that the current elected leaders, the current leaders who the people have chosen, they are staunch supporters of the Jewish community, opponents of anti-Semitism, friends of Israel, and, and you know, as a student of history, and, and here we're sitting thinking back on the 75 past years of history, I, I can't help but notice that that is an inversion of the way things stood in many respects 75 years ago in Europe, 
right, where the people, sure, there were anti-Semites among the people, but it was the leaders of the countries that were spurring people on to be more anti-Semitic. So, you know, what do we make of that, and what are we supposed to do if, as you say, in Germany, this country where everything is, is they're doing all the right things, right? What are we supposed to do to fight anti-Semitism if the right things don't work? Well, it's very interesting. I am often asked, Hannah, is this 1938? And it's very quick, my answer, no, it's not. It isn't that some of the signs aren't frightening, like in 1938 or 33. It is that we have made a difference. American Jewish Committee made a difference. Federation system made a difference. Jews organized, um, organized to the extent that some people think we have too much power and we have to call them on that. Mm -hmm. That's a whole other thing we can talk about. But we have made a difference in that when something horrible happens, we do have people speaking out. And so it, in the end, I have to hope, will make a difference in pushing back. We had no pushback in 1938. We had no business leaders, labor unions, ministers, academia. We had no one pushing back, and they are all pushing back now. And that's something we should, AJC should feel good about, and all of us wearing our very many hats should feel good about because it ultimately will stop it. It will at least retard it. And that's a very good thing in these very frightening times. Hannah, we're almost out of time. I have, I'm going to try to fit in two final questions. Okay. Um, for the first one, though, based on some of the things that you and I discussed beforehand, I need to offer a, a quick warning, a uh, reminder to everyone that AJC is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization that neither endorses nor You only said it to me three or four times. For elective office. For the first two years of the Trump administration, there was no special envoy to combat anti-Semitism. Why did that matter? Oh, it matters big time. First of all, you may have seen my op-eds in the Washington Post <laughs> and in USA Today calling on the president to fill this up. He did a few months ago, and the person that's there um, seems to travel a lot. It is a job that calls for a lot of travel. Many of the people around him were the people I hired, and so I hear from them what's going on. <laughs> we'll see what difference he makes. We'll see what orders he's getting from Pompeo or from the White House. It makes a difference, and that's why this job was created. And it was created with bipartisan support, unanimous support in Congress. And that was, do you all remember hearing the word Durban? What happened in Durban was a horrendous UN conference. We're kind of used to bad UN conferences when it comes to anti-Semitism, but it was so egregious there that some of the members of Congress who came back, led by Santos, the only Holocaust survivor ever to serve. Lantos. What did I say? Santos. Oh yeah, Lantos, Santos. Santos is from you the West say, Lanto, right. <laughs> And um, I worked closely with his daughter on things. <laughs> He and others, Chris Smith, who's a Republican from New Jersey, they got together and they created this as a piece of legislation. So it is congressionally mandated. Most of the other special envoys are at the whim of the president or the secretary of state. This is mandated. And so the fact that they let it go for two years 
um, was a Shanda. And I'm not sure the White House understands that word, but I know, 501c3. And, um, and it can make a big difference. What I did regularly was bring in all the Jewish organizations. Most of them had Washington offices, and I worked closely with Andy Baker in your Washington office. And I would keep them up to date with what I was hearing. They would tell me people to look up when I'd say, here are the countries I'm about to go to. And it was a really good dialogue. Those meetings are no longer happening, and I don't know if they will be. We'll have to give him a few more months to get his feet wet, but if you're asking me, you ask me, does it make a difference? The answer is unless someone is tasked with identifying and confronting anti-Semitism, it will not be done. Here's my last question. I want to bring everyone back up a little bit. We just talked about anti-Semitism for 25 minutes. Um, oh, you want to talk about my grandchildren? <laughs> <laughs> um, Maybe, actually. That, that might be where your answer goes. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. So, so when Melanie was talking about the Pittsburgh shooting and about show up for Shabbat that AJC organized afterwards, it brought me back to that moment and, and to thinking about how out of something so dark, so evil, so terrible came what, as best I can tell, was the largest popular show of support for the Jewish people in world history. Right? That is an amazing thing. Amazing. It took a lot of community relations, years of it, years of the work that AJC does and community relation councils all over the country to make that happen. And, and so here's the question is, that's a bit of good news, right? What is the good news? What is the good news that you have for all of us about the fight against anti-Semitism? Well, allow me to brag a little bit. One of the things that I instituted at the State Department is that when we bring in new people who have passed the Foreign Service exam and they're being trained to be the new Foreign Service officers all over the world, um, that there be a training in anti-Semitism so that people who are in Japan or are in um, Uruguay or are in Berlin um, that they know what they're looking for. If I'm calling them and saying what's going on and they don't know what anti-Semitism is, it's a bad thing. So we train them and now th the good thing is people know to recognize it and to report it. The other good thing is the United States government now has an official definition of what anti-Semitism is. And how could I train people if we didn't have a definition to teach them? And it's a very comprehensive training that I think some members of Congress ought to have. And I think that we're not far from having that happen. And that it's very good news because there's an interest. People want to know, well, what is anti-Semitism? You mean Jews aren't being rounded up and sent away to camps? Then there is no anti-Semitism. And it's a real consciousness raising and people are getting it. And I think that's something to hold on to and be very supportive of. Ladies and gentlemen, Hannah Rosenthal. My pleasure. Now it's time for our closing segment, Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? Legacy. Good for the Jews? No, I'm not talking about college admissions, and besides, legacy is passe. Nowadays, you just pay a half million dollar bribe to the university of your choice, and you're good to go. 
No, the type of legacy I'm talking about is the AJC legacy that began 75 years ago in 1944, when we created our first regional offices in Atlanta, Cleveland, Philadelphia, Chicago, Detroit, and elsewhere. 75 years ago, World War II was raging. Israel didn't yet exist. AJC here in Atlanta wasn't yet the other AJC because the journal and the Constitution hadn't merged. Casablanca won Best Picture and noted great-grandmother Queen Elizabeth was only 18 years old. What exactly is the legacy of our regional offices? Well, for one thing, American Jews had begun to move across the country and it was important to them that AJC move with them. But at its core, the creation of the regional offices had more to do with the communities that Jews were moving to than with the Jews who were moving there. The offices were investments. They were reflective of the belief that Jewish advocacy didn't just need to be where the power was in New York and Washington, it needed to be where the people were. That it wasn't sufficient to stand by ourselves, we needed to stand up for others. And quickly, AJC Atlanta developed a legacy all its own. As the civil rights era dawned and the AJC office here took a spot at the forefront of the Jewish community on that issue, a position it continues to occupy today. That is legacy. There are similar legacies being celebrated across the country this month as AJC offices turn 75. 75 years of global Jewish advocacy performed at the local level. 75 years of making a difference in our communities. Happy birthday, AJC Regional Offices. You are good for the Jews. Thank you, everybody. That's our show. You can subscribe to AJC Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at AJC.org passport. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at passport at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Kukang Do. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC Passport.